I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show we're ready to do this you feeling good i feel great you kidding so many so many so many damn books Welcome to So Many Damn Books. My name is Christopher, and this is A Blessing, A Curse, and A Podcast. I am so excited to have Angela Ledgerwood joining me in the damn library in Brooklyn, actually in person. She is sitting across from me right now. I cannot contain my excitement. It is so cool to have you here. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. You kidding? In person, drinking a cocktail with you. This is great. This feels exactly like I remember the show feeling. Um, Angela is the editorial director of Sugar 23 um, with a long and varied book career, including creating and hosting the incredibly popular podcast Lit Up. And you're from Sydney and now you live in, in Manhattan and... I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad. I've listened to the podcast so much. and I particularly love your episode with Alexandra Kleeman, who I think is one of the best humans on the planet. Oh, I love her. And I, I, she's been back for all of her books. I think we've had her on three, we've had three times. I mean, she's prolific. You know when you have those authors and they come back with another book? And you and I have that experience and you think, what have I done in those two years <laughs> since? I'm like, this incredibly talented person has another whole book. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, too, of when you buy someone's exciting book and you're like, oh, great. Like, I'm really excited to read this. And then you put it on your shelf and it like other books, you know, take your attention. And then they publish another book and it makes you realize, like, wait a minute. Like, I never even how deep is my bench of my shelf that like someone was able to publish two novels before I got to the last one? I know. And I think I have ideas for books all the time. I've never written a book. Um, and I really respect those that have. So when they come back around, it's just, you know, puts me to shame all over again. Well, I'm sure that's why they're doing it. And, you know, they're so, that's authors. You know, you can't trust them. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. It's probably because this cocktail is um, already going to my head. Bamba's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bamba's, you are also giving to someone in need. Bamba's designed their socks, shirts, and underwears to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a cozy feel. There's a pair of Bamba socks for everything you do. 
They come in tons of options, like comfy performance style made with sweat wicking yarn, which is perfect for a runner like me. And it also means that my feet stay cool while the rest of me works up a sweat. Bumba's no-show socks are designed for comfort while being specifically engineered to never fall down. So let your ankles be free to soak up the sunlight. Bumba's t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and the perfect weight so they hang just right. Perfect for the summer. And Bumba's underwear is so breathable and fits so well, it fits like you're wearing nothing at all in a good way. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. So far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. So go to bombas.com smdb and get 20% off your purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash smdb for 20% off. Bombas.com slash smdb. Well, I had to tell Christopher when he said it was a smoky Negroni that I find Negronis the most potent cocktails I can have. Like I'll even laugh with friends being like, I shouldn't have one (laughs) because who knows what will happen. So here we go. But I think talking about books and having Negroni is a pretty, you know, it's not a too risky of a bet, but we'll see. Right, exactly. Well, this is in honor of the title of your podcast. I knew I had to do something on fire in some way because lit up. Why not light something up? And I have so many different ways to to smoke a cocktail. I just went with the old regular. You put a chilled glass over wood chips. Um, that you've lit on fire. I have that great creme brulee torch, um, which I know it can be a torch for anything, but that's what it, I bought it for. And it's I also um, infused the Aperol with pineapple, which I just love pineapple infused Aperol. I've been having it in, co- I, I think it's uh, New York summer. I think that's just what some of the bars are doing. So I was like, I need to have this at home as well. So it's just literally just cutting up pineapple and putting it in your Aperol that you keep in the fridge for a while. Ooh, and then I've never had that before. This is why I'm, it is lighting me up <laughs> already. So it's, uh, it's regular red r- vermouth, a, a dry gin because everything is already so sweet. And um, so, yeah, this is the lit up and smoked and I'm really Cheers. enjoying it. Cheers. Clink, clink. Okay. So now we're liquored up and we're ready to go into mm. celebrating our own rampant book buying addictions. Uh, let's talk. What did you buy? Angela, do you want to go first, or do you want me to to set this all up? You know what? I'm ready to reveal mine. Oh Just yeah! Rip the bandaid off. Go for it. Okay, so. So I kind of misjudged the timing of this book arriving because, you know, when you order something online, you're not quite sure when it'll arrive. So this is the book that arrived and it's called, it's a secondhand book and it's called um, How the Buddha Got Unstuck. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. 
And I'm obsessed with this woman and I'll have to Google her name. Uh, She's since passed away, but all of her books are out of print. But I first was given one of her books that was called If the Buddha Dated. Okay. Like when I was single and, you know, when you're like, please, anything, help. But I got it from a very wonderful friend, like a very accomplished friend, the kind of friend that was like my single white female. Like Mm. if I move into her apartment, I might be more like her. (laughs) You know, if I read what she, you know, reads, maybe I'll find a gorgeous husband like her. (laughs) And so she gave me this book and it was all, uh, you know, dog-eared and marked. And If the Buddha Dated was so prolific. I love this book Mm -hmm. that was written, I think, in the 80s. And now I have got all of her series of books coming to me. So If the Buddha Got Unstuck is the one that arrived probably like on Sunday or Saturday whenever, you know, secondhand Amazon uh, delivers. (laughs) And I, I started reading it and I feel like it's already helping me. Oh, yeah. So is it just like a Zen approach to life type of like take things as they come sort of? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously it's a long book series that is difficult to uh, summarize. I think it's taking the Buddhist principles and just applying them to whatever moment you're having. And in this case, I think a lot of it is about getting in touch with yourself so you can then act appropriately and find what's right for you. Um, I'm not explaining it too well. I've only just started it. So <laughs> I could talk, you know, infinitum about if the Buddha dated. Um, <laughs> but I think a lot of it is about we, had, we our suffering and our emotional suffering is we bring that on ourselves mm-hmm. by having expectations of how other people should act towards us, particularly. What's your history with, I mean, would you call the book self-help? I would. I yeah. think so. What's your history with self-help books? Is this like the first one that's kind of gotten through to you and like made you want to read more? Yeah, I would say I have not been drawn to them in the past. And I think because it was given to me or recommended by someone I really respected, I took it more seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I you know, I have friends who have, you know, a whole shelf of self-help books. Yeah. And they're like, what's your problem today? Attachment, anxiety, <laughs> you know, Yeah. and they'll pull one out. But I am not like that at all. I right. probably, I don't know if, I mean, we, we read a little similarly from what I glean from, you know, particularly your podcast guests, but it's a lot of literary fiction. It's a lot of female driven stories and mm-hmm. writers. Um, so no, I'm having an awakening of sorts. <laughs> That's really lovely. I I was, I'm always surprised at when I find one as though like an enormous industry that like finds a lot of people wouldn't find me for some reason. But there's a reason why these books like find audiences and find a lot of people is because they're actually helpful. I feel sometimes when I want to change up my life, Mm -hmm. I reach for a book that will help me do that. Yeah. In the past, I've always just assumed that like the thing that's broken in me is that I need to be writing every day. And so like if I just wrote every day, everything else would get fixed. And so when I um when I get self-help books, it's always like, oh, this is I remember buying Lisa Crone's uh book uh, Wired for Story, which is about how we're 
um, evolutionary, evolutionarily drawn to narrative and how to use that in your own writing, which is really a fun way to sort of use like that Malcolm Gladwell brain science type stuff and apply it to writing. And it was a it was a great book because it and the artist's way similarly like the, I feel feel like those end up being my self help books I like writing manuals, well like Bird by Bird and oh. Lamont I mean everyone I could hear them already being like mm, yeah of course yeah <laughs> but I don't know about you do you have this feeling because you just mentioned that you feel like you should be writing every day sometimes I feel that the time spent reading the kind of self help book I could be doing the thing that I'm reading the self-help book to help me do. Mm-hmm. And we're all, we all have so little time. Sometimes I'm like, get over it. You don't need to process your childhood trauma. Just yeah. do the thing. Exactly. I mean, like that's, that's the thing that does trip me up and why whenever anyone asks me for a book about writing, like what, what would I recommend? There's of course some that I would say, but I always just say like, just read books you like the books you like will help you. Um, so like buying another writing manual is, is just, to me, it's just like an investment. It's just $18 that says like, I put down $18 to write like, and promise myself that I'll follow this for a while. I just feel like it, you're just buying the investment in your time in the same way that an MFA is a really expensive way to do that. Very expensive. <laughs> I was a culprit of that. Although I think the MFA, the relationships I made, doing a low-res MFA at mm-hmm. Pacific University in Oregon, I felt that those relationships p- pushed me towards the next, the moment in my career, like actually being able to get a job in magazines because I had, A, the confidence, but also like a writer or two who were gener- generous enough to say, you know, email this person that just interviewed me or, you know, find this book on Facebook Mm -hmm. and say that we're connected. Right. Like that was what helped. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No. And I found that I found the same thing when through my MFA, almost all the people that I got really close to, I'm still close to in like a writing and publishing way. But it's certainly an expensive way to kind (laughs) of create a community. Yeah. Um, Versus maybe just, you know, buying a self-help book that helps you realize that maybe you don't need to spend a lot of money on an MFA. Um, maybe the self-help book should have come first. Maybe I should have been reading about what how the Buddha got unstuck before I, I used an MFA to get unstuck. Uh, you and me both. <laughs> I mean, now I'm just reeling back. I'm like, oh, that money. We could be, <laughs> be in a different place. but I wouldn't have come to New York. I, got my M- I, I moved to New York to get my MFA. So, you know, there's a reason. There's a reason for it all. I think so too. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, books, I mean, all the books we read are trying to create meaning from the chaos. So maybe we find the books we need at the right time. I I, fu- I fully believe that. Um, but before we get all the way down the line, I just want to tell you about the books that I got yes. so far, which I'm really excited about this um, Thistlefoot by Jenna Rose Nethercott. So Jenna Rose Nethercott, she, I, I discovered her during the pandemic. She had this novel that she had published that's told completely in cootie catchers. You know, the like fortune teller things. Yes. And so she had, it's, you had to fold them up and then you followed this very sort of fairy tale-esque story. 
And her new novel comes out in September, so I'm really excited that I got an early copy. And it's a novelization, a retelling, a reimagining of the Baba Yaga house on chicken legs uh, story. And it's about two, um, a con man and an artist, I believe, our, our brother and sister, and they haven't, have totally fallen off um, contact until they find out that they're going to be inheriting this house on chicken legs. <laughs> it sounds like a trip. Yeah, I'm really excited to read it. And then I also got this book from MIT Press called Content by Kate Eichhorn. And it's like a sort of a cultural understanding of the word content. How do we get here? Um, content and the content industry God, from the early internet so interesting. to the Instagram egg is what it says on the back. So yeah, I'm really excited to read it because I do wonder that word, even people who hate saying it end up saying it like, Oh, what sort of content are you making or being a content creator? It's such a gross way to talk about being creative. Um, but then I find myself using the word anyway. Well, maybe we just have to come up with another word that will in time become just as gross. But, <laughs> for, you know, there's often a moment where those words are fresh. Right. And then they become tainted with, what, capitalism, really, or or manipulation, mm -hmm. I feel. Content means, in my mind, manipulation of some kind from a corporation. Hmm. I think because I know the word so much from the YouTube space, I think huh. video. I think of, uh, and maybe also the Bo Burnham special inside. He's got the song content and he's here. I made you some content and it's just anything that he made. It's an hour long comedy special is content. You That's know? so cool. That difference that we just identified because I think coming from magazines, I would always think of, a, what is the content that's going up, but also branded content. Mm -hmm. How is branded conf content infiltrating the the kind of editorial page? You know, what's paid, what's mm -hmm. sponsored? So it's, I always equate content with the word kind of like a sponsored content. Right. As opposed to just your way is far more pure. I like <laughs> it. Maybe, maybe I'm trying to come at come at it from like a humanist perspective and and saying like aren't we all making it but it, it still makes me sad because i think we need we don't need to be that that like um pulled back and magnanimous about the about what we're creating we can call it what it is it doesn't have to all be able to fit under this enormous umbrella word no i love that yeah I'm excited to read what Kate Eichhorn uncovers. I'm hoping she can give me some new insight to the space. I think I need to get that book as well. <laughs> I know that listening to something is what made me want to start a podcast. But I'm curious, what, what got you into the podcasting form? What made you want to do Lit Up? Gosh, that's really easy to identify because I was an editor at Cosmo. Uh, back when the print was still a thing and I was lucky enough to interview a lot of women for the magazine but felt that I'd had these really interesting conversations you know half hour conversations to try and you know glean their story 
And yet when we would translate that to print, it would end up being, you know, sound bites virtually, like, you know, these incredible women that had done amazing things or had traumatic experiences were kind of condensed into, you know, what song do you work out to? <laughs> you know, which An important question. Very important question. You know, if it's alongside other important questions, it's showing a well-rounded person. But mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it felt quite limiting after having, after finding these women so multidimensional, what came out in the pages sometimes felt... Not so. Right. And then I realized that I had these recordings, you know, because you did it over the phone as a kind of, in quote, journalist. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wait, what if people could just listen to these? And it was a bit before, I mean, podcasts were, a li- were starting out, but they mm-hmm. weren't really that well known. And I just thought, I'll try and do it myself and have it not be a part of Cosmo so I can have the type of conversations I want to have. And so that coincided me with coincided with me leaving Cosmo and I had the most incredible experience there Um, but then starting lit up as a way to do my own thing wow yeah so this is a um this is a philosophical ish question but what do you get from reading that you don't get from anywhere else oh gosh what a great question I get a sense of peace because my attention is so fully inside of someone else's world when when it works well Mm -hmm. you know when you're when you're having the the right reading experience I mean not that it's right or wrong but an immersive reading experience I feel just at a I've lost myself and I'm in another place which Mm -hmm. I think is just a sense of peace and calm. I think it's just a way to transport ourselves into other worlds, other perspectives, and that is really exciting. Mm-hmm. And I don't get that as, you know, an Aussie transplant walking down the street in New York. I, I don't know. It's just a quiet, I think it's a quiet moment that you have with yourself but through someone else's intelligence. Mm. Right. The whole taking a walk through someone's mind. Yeah. Maybe that's why I'm drawn to my Buddha books or something, but I think losing yourself and caring about yourself and your stupid ego and all the concerns that we have every day with that feel like so self-centric... I find reading just takes me away from myself and into another place. And like, that's such a relief. Right. Right. That sort of panorama is really only possible in a book. Yeah. I think film can be that immersive too. And that's its own beautiful medium. But there's something about how reading triggers your own imagination in terms of you have to create that those visuals for yourself. And I think that's why we all get so attached to those books and characters that mean so much to us. And then when someone tries to translate that to the screen, it can be very difficult yeah. for us to accept. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, how, I almost feel, I'm like, doesn't everyone feel that way about reading? Is that your connection? What you brought up, that that sort of, 
panorama feeling where you're walking through someone else's brain and like there's nothing else but you and the words but somehow it's all it's taking everything you can really feel everything even though it's just you and the words that space it when it's truly working is is there's nothing else like it and you know it, you can go books and books and books without really truly feeling that feeling and you wonder like oh no did i use it all up is that <laughs> did i use all the all of my book magic but it then something inevitably finds you so i i think that uh, i think that's why i i still find magic in it along with it being i mean at this point i've focused so much of my life around books <laughs> i'm sure you can relate to this that like i i just have to believe now it's like i've stockholm sy- syndrome myself that like this is somewhat important in some way um and i'd love for you to talk about that yourself like what it talk about your relation to editing and and how has your relationship to books changed with your job and with podcasting it's really changed and i think time spent trying to find books to publish has meant i have far less time for my own reading for pleasure or reading those tried and true books that you know the world and the culture has said this is worth reading there's certainly an excitement in trying to find those books which i'm sure you have as well definitely um but it's it's quite rare to feel that magic um so we wait um so i i'm so fortunate i I'm the editorial director of a book imprint that we're now partnering at uh, Penguin Random House. So we publish across imprints so we can kind of focus on the genre we love. Um, And so, yeah, I'm reading submissions from editors that are coming in. I'm trying to identify people that I think should write a book. Do they have the ability to write it themselves? Do you partner them with a great writer to help bring their story out? Um, but in terms of the relationship I have with reading, um, some I'm reading so many proposals often, and you know, a novel proposal that comes in is usually a full manuscript, yeah, almost always. So you have that full reading experience there, which is really satisfying. Um, but obviously I will stop, you know, as soon as I know it's not right for our imprint, I will stop reading. Um, but then on the nonfiction side, I'm reading proposals, which can be kind of 40 to 80 pages long. And it's, it's almost the dream visualization for the book. Uh So often I can imagine the great book to come, uh, from that. And that's when we go for it and we try and publish, you know, get that author, and then go on the two-year process of them writing the book. Um, And I've been fortunate that the books have delivered. But in terms of, I guess, coming back to just how I read, it's pretty selective now. I find before I used to have a lot of time for discovery and taking chances. Um, But now when I have my own time, I I rely on friends who are really good readers or people like you – who are curating that list for me. Mm. So it's it's changed. Like I feel like I used to curate the list when I was writing for Esquire or like, you know, doing those roundups for like what to read this month. I was like 
hungry for like what's going to be different and new. Um, and now once I'm, once I've got the publishing side of my work done, that makes no sense. I'm like, Christopher, the Negroni, <laughs> the Negroni is hitting me hard. Um, well, yeah, all that is to say reading has changed. I need arbiters to help me find those books to relax and read to um, because my work is often reading unpolished work that right. can feel a little less satisfying. Yes. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Although it does give you that cool thing where you got to see something that maybe you didn't jump on it and you didn't work on it, but you get to see a lot of things in chrysalis form that like when you see the finished thing, you're like, oh, cool. I'm glad they did that. <laughs> That's incredible. And to see how an editor's vision at another publishing house has shaped a manuscript that I read and saw and thought was good or great and, you know, that we went for and then lost. <laughs> right. And to see how it shifted and changed and then hit the world because of those other people's ideas is really interesting. So I'm so excited that you finally got me to read this book, The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan. And I'm just curious, what made you want to put it on my desk? What, what, what made you recommend it? So I've been thinking about this because it's such a strange book for me to recommend. And at the time that we were organizing this conversation, I was waiting for my dad to come from Australia to visit. Huh. So I think that was so subliminally influencing my decisions. And I read this book many, many years ago when I was incredibly homesick for Australia. And I was really sick um, like living alone in Brooklyn and I read it in about two days and I remember connecting so much with it because my step-grandfather had been a prisoner of war in World War II and it just it made me understand the stoicism of him Stuart my step-grandfather but also my father's generation mm -hmm. and I remember just crying so much and for lit up I had actually interviewed Richard Flanagan about this book, but I could not stop crying. Oh my gosh. That we never put the interview up. It was, I was having a reaction, you know, in therapy, they would say, you know, like I was projecting. It was not about lovely Richard Flanagan, <laughs> but something about him because I hadn't been home in so long kind of undid me. Mm. And he was so kind. So... That was all connecting to why I picked it when I did, because it's a very Australian story. It's a very masculine story. It's about war. And I think to the war in the Ukraine and Russia happening and thinking about what will happen to those men on both sides, mm -hmm. it was just swimming around in my head. Because um, usually I would pick, you know, a book by a, a woman or a perspective that I am drawn to that's certainly not my own but in this case i picked this and i'll i guess i'll <laughs> stick to it <laughs> it won the man booker prize in 2014 it and people just flipped for it i mean there was a very i remember at the time that like it was everywhere um that that year and it's it, it reminded me of in some ways the english patient by michael Ondache. um where it's this story about love at the base of it. 
and and possibilities and roads not quite taken and I think that that was the part that spoke to me the most um which is great because it's this it's the thrum of the whole book I think that there's a so there's a love story that runs throughout and I think that's meant to be a reprieve from the violence that you have to inhabit in a prisoner of war camp um, in World War Two. So I think that's really interesting because to me, I remember connecting so much to the love story and I start, I re- started rereading it thinking that we were going to have this conversation and I was kind of surprised by, I was surprised by my connection to it mm-hmm. in, you know, a few years since revisiting it. I was like, huh, I don't know if I would be drawn to it in the same way now, but I think that the issues it brings up are still timeless. One thing that I kept coming back to and the narrative keeps coming back to because it's one guy, Darago Evans, It's he's the uh, most main character, although there are a lot of perspectives and you get a lot of different voices, um, but you get his the most. And he's a now a extremely successful surgeon who is looking back on this wild time of being a doctor in a prisoner of war prisoner of war camp and the thing that it keeps coming back to and interrogating is the idea that the only time in these men's lives that feels meaningful to them after the war is the war that war gives meaning to things and i i find that idea (laughs) repulsive but i also understand why these men are feeling that way this that book this book sort of interrogates that feeling from all the sides of like understanding why they think that and also being heartbroken that that could be true for them i i think and i don't want to speak for anyone but i think veterans feel that way it, i feel like their lives are so life and death is so present in those situations and that their meaning is created out of the friendships and the relationships that happen there. So I think it's, I mean, I have never had that experience, but I think it's fascinating for us to think about that. Um, I think these men forge, it's like a football team and there is kind of a scene of a football team that opens the book I think there's a camaraderie that comes through such intense pressure and what they would have done for each other. And it was so clear what they had to do. They were just trying to survive that I I think probably when you leave that situation, life can feel flippant when it's not that, things can feel like they're not as important in the real world that seems kind of soft and easy. He really inhabits that um, in because this really jumps around in time. You don't know the next page if you're going to be in in the camp or if you're going to be at a, at a benefit dinner where he's looking around and just slightly disgusted by the world that he is and how it doesn't feel like it has meaning, as you were saying. I will say that the food I was I was thinking about the food the whole time of this book because I personally I think of f- 
focusing on food is one of the great things about novels. I love reading about food in general. This book, <laughs> really, it wants you to, like, not to be salivating over the food, but you, you're even like a greasy ball of rice. You're, like, hoping your char- the character gets to eat it because they're so starving this whole time. But it's always the worst food. It's never stuff that you... This this book makes you think that Richard Flanagan just doesn't like eating and has never liked it or something. I don't know. It's interesting. I, I similarly am so drawn to books about food, but I wouldn't have connected that with this one, although that was, you know, being a prisoner of war in World War II, part of the... I mean, that experience was starvation. Um, yeah, so I, we can cut this bit out. Yeah, I. there are many books I want to talk to you about delicious food, but maybe not so much the <laughs> lack of it. Well, I mean, I, there is one point where a character has this duck egg and oh, they're about yeah. to eat this duck egg and they've stolen it from someone else in their camps. And it's the, it's this perspective that was kind of my favorite to read from of this guy who's like i want to find one one thing every day to look forward to and that's how he's getting through the war is this crazy i you know mini optimism idea that almost sounds like it could have come from like a marie kondo like or like your the My Buddha. Buddha book yeah it sounds like something that could come from that um because it's such a good idea and it, i'm sure it's extremely effective and he's stolen this duck egg to enjoy, and he's trying to decide between that and a can of condensed milk for his treat. And it was like the the part of the book that like I I really saw myself in because I was because that's probably I I am very treat motivated um, for my own life, so <laughs> so that resonated with me. It was helpful to me to read to connect to generations past who've gone through so much. And to realize just how easy my life, in quote, struggling in New York was at that time I read it. Mm-hmm. And maybe to understand why some of the kind of emotional connection that I miss with my father or the grandfathers I didn't get to meet. But that lineage of how families inherit silences or things like that, it just made me understand or be a little more compassionate towards i guess grown-up men Mm. this is one of the real fascinating things about this book for me is just i didn't know any sort of how australia has been involved in any war you know that's not something that us you know united states history is pretty united states centric um you know in the school system so i didn't i've never known what australia had gotten up to so reading about a complete, you know, it made me think while I was reading the book how little you really get of other countries' um, literature on the wars that they fight. I mean, similarly, I don't think I read too much as a young person about, oh, I guess American wars are always world wars, essentially, or when America enters a war. Um, but this book is set around 1943. Um, and a lot of Australians were prisoners of war, of the Japanese, kind of that axis of, you know, Italy, Germany, and Japan, and went through, you know, 
so much in that throughout that experience. So, yeah, world wars affect us all. You know, we all get drawn into them. But again, I think particularly in this book, whatever side, I mean, this is this is told from the Australian perspective and you're like, oh, you know, in this case, the Japanese were the, in quote, bad ones. Well, the book is really about just human beings and what human beings do to one another. And actually, Richard Flanagan, there's an incredible story he tells about going back, going to Japan, because this story is really a a retelling of his father's story, though his father would tell him about this doctor who was in the camp he was in. Mm. Um, But Richard himself goes back to find this general that was particularly violent towards these men, and he meets him. And the moment he is meeting him in Japan, there's an earthquake. And the two men, this is in real life, uh, you know, the the literally the ground is shaking, the buildings are shaking. And he, Richard just explains this moment of like humanity, this shared vulnerability in because of this earthquake, but also the earthquake kind of represents this cataclysmic moment in his own life as a son confronting the man that had, you know, hovered oh in inside of his father's dreams for so long and kind of tortured him but also the kind of compassion that was there Mm. so there's kind of many layers to the story that i think are really interesting kind of but i didn't know any of that when i read it Mm -hmm. but yeah again as an a strange a war novel (laughs) who would have thought yeah. Angie would bring that to the table. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was I was surprised by it, but I was sort of excited to to see what it had in store. I mean, some I'm always surprised when how effective a war novel can be, especially when they're a little off. They're not the they're not just a another World War II story from the perspectives that we know. Like I remember um City of Thieves by David David Benioff, which is about like trying to get like a dozen eggs to make an make a cake for a general's daughter or something for, or for her wedding. And it's just, it's just that it's just like a mission (laughs) to go get eggs. Almost feels like a video game um, premise, but I, I can, I think those can be really powerful telling the little stories, the little things that make up the war that aren't necessarily generals in rooms. Um, Yeah. Definitely. I have to read that. I haven't read it. It, it sounds it's, amazing. Um, it's a it's a great it's a great novel. Um, a good a good comedic duo at the center of it. Um, but I appreciate the recommendation. And my I, pleasure again. <laughs> like a strange one. <laughs> and I'm so I'm so glad that you um, that you brought it to me because I ne- I really would have probably never read it otherwise. And I and I'm glad to have had the chance. And I'd love to hear. I mean. You know, we're headed now into the final portion of the show, which is recommendations. And I'd love to hear what you might recommend, books, movies, music, anything. Oh, okay. People. Well, a couple of books. I feel like I'm like the self-help guru and I haven't really read many of them or lately. But there is another book that I can't stop talking about. And I feel like through the pandemic, it was really helpful. And it's called Joyful mm. by Ingrid Fatel Lee. And she's a designer who 
I think, went to Pratt and was giving her final presentation, you know, all very serious with these kind of objects she'd built, all these lamps. And she had this moment where all the professors there said, huh, like, they bring us joy. And she remembers feeling so angry at them because her very serious design projects weren't designed to bring people joy. They went, they were meant to be functional, you know, interesting, cutting edge. And so that prompted her to spend the next few years of her life while she, you know, had a great job design, you know, as a designer, researching what aesthetics bring us joy, Mm. um, what shapes, what plants, like actually how it works in our brains and minds, what type of play brings us joy. Um, so it's just a beautiful, it's a, it's the book I give most Mm. to anyone. Yeah. And it's not, when I explain it, it's not like give a plant. These are very specific things you've never heard about, like a, a city mayor in, you know, a country in Eastern Europe, I can't pronounce properly, who was a basketballer who got a bit like a, you know, a local celebrity who gets to be mayor because the town was in complete disarray and disrepair. And he had such a small budget to try and clean up his town that he didn't know what to do, but he thought he'd paint the darkest parts of the city where, you know, drug deals were happening, crime in crazy bright colors. Okay. And there are pictures of this town and I'll give you notes, you know, afterwards so people can look it up on the Instagram and things, but it started to change people's relationship to that space, the Mm. color enlivened things, also the care that people took in taking something that was, people had just said was okay to be an ugly place that no one cared about. It it reframed how people thought about space mm-hmm. by giving it color and care and it started to change the town wow. in itself. So it's really about these like psychological underpinnings of joy and how we can kind of make change in our life. Um, so I'm totally miss self-help today. <laughs> no, it sounds great. And then, I mean, I think... One of the best novels of last year was Liberty by Caitlin Greenwich. Mm-hmm. And I think about that book so often and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I still think about the mother-daughter relationship inside of that. And it illuminated parts of history that I didn't know about, like certain parts of the reconstruction history mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, you know, where we are. Um, and the relationship with, oh no, we'll say that. I don't know. I'm like (laughs) trailing off now, Chris. The Negroni, we better swap. (laughs) I got to see an early screening of the Elvis movie. Um, it's crazy. I loved watching Austin Butler be Elvis. Um, and that was, I don't know how good of a movie it is. I don't know if I even talk, we can really talk about movies like that anymore. I had a fantastic time watching it. Austin Butler is amazing in it. Tom Hanks, who knows what he's doing in that movie, but it's very fun to watch. Um, So my recommendation isn't the movie, it's the soundtrack. It's fantastic. There's some, of 
course Elvis tracks, but there's like Doja Cat's um, song where she samples Hound Dog, an incredible song that's featured in the movie. Um, very, very fun soundtrack. One of the absolute most fun that I have heard recently. So I recommend listening to it. That's a great recommendation. <laughs> My mom, you know, said, you know, are, are you waiting for the Elvis you mm-hmm. know, movie to come out? It's Baz Luhrmann, you know, one of our own Australians. And I, again, I mean, cannot wait to go see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it. I think it's it's an incredibly polarizing movie. I feel like you either walk out loving it or hating it. And um, I loved it. So I love Top Gun. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I haven't seen that yet. It's worth it. And yeah. I went um, to a cinema where I think there are a lot of like middle schoolers in the audience, middle graders, or where like a, a potential sex scene was coming on. Um, with Jennifer Connelly and Tom Cruise and they were all like twittering and being, it was a very vocal theater. Nice. When Tom Cruise came on to introduce the film. Okay. Everyone cheered. <laughs> for the, we were like for the just video for Tom, of Tom Cruise. Just for Tom. It was crazy. It was so much fun. Yeah. People was yelling and screaming. Everyone clapped in the end. People were like hooting in it. It was like going to the theater. It was really fun. I love that. Well, there's that's another recommendation. Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who knew I was the like commercial movie and self-help, self-help recommender. <laughs> it's cr- that's nuts. To me, we're surprising we, ourselves. Yeah, we are who we are. Angela, I'm so glad that you could come and hang out on so many damn books. This has been a total pleasure. And um, everyone, of course, needs to go and listen to Lit Up. And you've got an entire long trail of all sorts of episodes. It's been going for many years. So there's many wonderful authors. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I am so glad that you could come on. Thanks for doing it. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Uh, to the people, to the, to the fine people at home. Uh, of course, you can always go to so many and click on this episode and you can see all the books that we've mentioned and along with movies and everything. Um, you can also go to the patreon.com slash smdb if you want to give me money um, anybody at the five dollars and up is going to get a sticker um, in the mail very soon i just got the stickers they're very beautiful i'm so excited for how they turned out um, designed by my friend jeff wiggins and also you can leave a, a review on lit up or on so many damn books we love we love itunes reviews they're the best when you get another great review, it's very helpful for the world. So go and do that. And that's it. Bye. Bye. Bye.